Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Jim Robbins is a veteran journalist based in Helena, Montana. He's written for the New York Times, Condé Nast Traveler, and numerous other publications. And he's written recently about pandemic-related overcrowding on Montana's rivers, the connection between the growth of deadly viruses and the destruction of nature, the effects of public lands policy during the Trump administration, geothermal energy, and an Internet of Animals. We'll talk with him about public lands today and related topics as the Biden administration gets underway. Uh, Jim Robbins' latest book is The Wonder of Birds, What They Tell Us About the World, Ourselves, and a Better Future. And uh, he joins us on the line now. Uh, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you, Tom. Appreciate you uh, taking time to be with us. Uh, so when we had you on last, uh, we were talking about the Colorado River. You've done a series of uh, articles for uh, Yale E360 uh, uh, magazine. Um, I just wanted to check in with that just very briefly. I assume that the dire conditions we talked about then are, are if anything, maybe worse. They aren't, haven't gotten better. Yeah, the prediction for, for this coming year is pretty dire. I mean, they have gotten some snow here in the last few days, but I don't know how far behind they they are now. But up until recently, there was um, was very little, like I think it was 70% of normal. So it's, it's it could be a very uh, kind of make-or-break year for the Colorado River. The title for the uh, in the article we were talking about, um, a subtitle, Will the Colorado Run Dry? Uh, just to remind listeners, it really is potentially that dire? Well, the Colorado River won't, won't run dry, but it could get to the point where the, the main reservoirs, Lake Mead and Lake Powell, are so low that, that uh, people or, excuse me, cities and, and other water users will have to give up some of the water that they're getting out. And that's the big that's the big concern uh, is that they'll have to start reducing what they take, and they only managed to evade that a couple of years ago with the drought contingency plan. So it's it's on the edge. These these reservoirs are are close to the edge of um, of being at the point where where people are going to have to start cutting back. Um, interestingly, one of the one of the d- debates these days is over whether Utah should be taking. Uh, more water out of the Colorado River with the Lake Powell Pipeline uh, into St. George, and that's because the water, the river is so low, and uh, excuse me, the reservoirs are so low. So, you know, if they take more water out, which they're entitled to, it could it could hasten the the drawdown of these uh, of these reservoirs. Yeah, that debate is still going on. I, th- I think uh, you know the project proponents are, are still wanting to do that. Oh yeah, uh, it's been called a boondoggle. It's really expensive. I think two billion was the last I heard, and it's not needed. There's plenty of water in the ground, but it's Utah's water. They have a right to take water from the Colorado River, and they want to get in on on their share before uh, you know that, that dries up before they're uh, before the overall water dries considerably, and they're not able to get it at all. So it's kind of a staking their claim kind of debate rather than uh, right now a need for that water yeah in the meantime those uh, reservoirs are slowly filling with sediment aren't they they are um i don't know what but behind the dams especially i don't know what the latest on that is but i do know that uh, lake mead they added another because the water has gotten so low they've added another drain because they're they're in danger of drawing the reservoir down below the second drain 
uh, to a low level, and so they put in a third one at the bottom so they can keep taking water out of it if it gets lower. I mean, that's 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 how serious things have gotten. Yeah. Now there uh, obviously talk about uh, conservation, water conservation. Um, but, but the people you talk to, uh, I've, I guess you know, good, laudable, but but uh, sufficient to solve the problem. Well, it, um, conservation alone will never solve the problem. It, it, and, and Phoenix, excuse me, yeah, Phoenix and Arizona, California. I mean, they've done a tremendous amount of conservation. They've taken up lawns. They've they've put in um, you know smart systems and and so on. But but and they've kind of done what they can do. But but the other agriculture is the biggest user of water, and that's where where a lot of the gains still need to be made. And alfalfa is one of the most um, thirsty crops of all, and it's not, it's it's grown by flood, uh, flood irrigation, which is an old-fashioned way of doing it, but they flood the fields, and, and um, there's a lot of uh, evaporative loss. But that's really where the gains are yet to be made. And a lot of that's going on. I visited uh, some ranches and farms in uh, Arizona where they're replacing alfalfa fields with uh, fruit orchards that get little micro jet um, sprinklers so you you use far less water by just spraying water right around the base of the tree and that kind of swap out is going on in a lot of places and that's where you'll see a lot of the the gains that remain to be made uh, made but whether that goes far enough really depends on how much snow you get in, in Colorado so um, one more thing on this, on, on the water. Uh, you've written about, uh, obviously, you know, explored this topic, desalinization. That, that, that's the way, I, I guess, some cities are going or trying to go. Yeah, uh, there's one near San Diego, and there's a second one going in Hutch, Hutchinson, California. I mean, it's really expensive. That's the, that's the uh, problem with it, but it's, it's come down a lot. And, of course, water has gone up a lot in places. But, well, there's a lot of desalinization uh, going in in Israel, South Africa, Australia. Uh, again, very expensive, but a lot of those places have run out of options, and so they're using desal. And I think you're going to, well, the experts tell me you're going to see a lot more of it in the future. Uh, I'd like to make a transition to uh, talking about public lands. We'll talk about some other things as well. You've you've uh, written uh, some very interesting articles on a wide, wide range of things recently. Um, but recently, for uh, you've been writing for Yale Environment 360 uh, magazine, um, and uh, this recent article talks about the transition from Trump administration to the Biden administration. The, the headline is, On U.S. Public Lands Can Biden Undo What Trump Has Wrought? Um, so I want to talk about that a little bit. Uh, of course, uh, the Trump administration uh, was very pro-development, uh, uh, rapidly expanded oil and gas uh, leases um, on public lands, and environmentalists, of course, decry that. Uh, now the Biden administration put a moratorium on new leases, but you still got a bunch of leases out there, right? Um, and, and you wrote about the, uh, I guess, the the fact that the, the ship of state uh, can't turn on a dime, right? There, there's still going to be a lot of after effect. Right. Inertia is just, it continues. Um, I've started writing about public lands 
in the 1980s for the Times and, and wrote my first book about public lands called Last Refuge in the 1990s. And that's when people were still trying to figure out how we can kind of manage um, public lands in a way that kind of didn't destroy the natural values of it, you know, through logging, ranching, and mining, and so on. And over the 90s and into the 2000s and the Clinton administration and Obama administration, there were a lot of gains made uh, in managing and trying to to do multiple use but also to protect the most important natural values on public lands. And when Donald Trump came in, it was it was just the opposite. They kind of went back to the early days when when um, when industrial uses were kind of ruling on public lands, oil and gas, mining, um, logging, old old style logging, and so on. And and they reversed everything that had been done in the previous a couple of decades. And so now it's going to be, uh, and I know the Biden administration is working toward this, how do you pick up those pieces and go back to to where we were before the Trump administration took over? And it's going to be interesting to see how they do it. One of the big areas is going to be, as it is there in Utah, the, the sage-grouse, which was um, in trouble. The greater sage-grouse was in trouble before um Trump took over, and a lot of the decisions they made targeted sage-grouse habitat. Some people think it was done on purpose, but it was already in decline because of development, and the Obama administration had tried to keep it from from becoming an endangered species, although in some people felt it was warranted that it should be listed. Now it may, may be even in more trouble, and so it's going to be interesting to see, especially with that issue, how they how they handle it to keep the bird from going into an endangered species uh, listing. Uh, I want to just read the the opening paragraph from your article. Uh, you say, early in the Trump presidency, Representative Jason Chaffetz of Utah introduced a bill to sell off more than 3 million acres of western public land. The outcry from conservation groups, sportsmen and women, and outdoor industry was enormous. Chaffetz hurriedly withdrew his legislation, and a stealth campaign began. Began. Then you quote Charles Wilkinson from University of Colorado Law School. Uh, He said Trump administration uh, didn't do, my words, a frontal assault, right? They went underground and uh, but were very effective what they wanted to do, just selling off uh, these leases parcel by parcel. Right. Uh, I've I've been covering, uh, I started covering public lands back in 1980. When the first sagebrush rebellion erupted out of Nevada, um, and legislators introduced a bill to take public lands back. Eighty-seven percent or so of Nevada is, public, is federal land, and so this idea that that Westerners should own the, the public land and, and the federal government should give them over to them has been going on for a long time, and then. Jason Chaffetz introduced his bill, and they found out right away that the public lands are are a lot more prized by other constituencies than the industry when they introduced that bill. Um, I've also written a lot about how you know people use public lands for you know wildlife values, hunting, fishing, all these different things, and so they ran into a real buzzsaw. And uh, Patagonia was one of the big companies that came out and fought the the bill and other other companies that have a huge stake. I forget the, the value of the outdoor industry, but it's something like $7 billion. Um, 
And so they were kind of forced to go underground and, and piecemeal away a lot of the, the things that they did. And one of those, probably the most dramatic, at least according to Charles Wilkinson, was this oil and gas leasing. And they, they just leased it cheap um, and quickly, and a lot more at the very end of the Trump administration uh, after the, he lost the election in order to get, get these leases out the door. And leases become a property right and can take years or decades if if there's an important natural area or something they want to protect, it can take a long time to undo these leases so that important areas can't be developed. And, and again, a lot of these leases were done in important natural areas that had been um, protected through uh, uh, rules and guidelines um, by the Bureau of Land Management. And uh, so it's going to take a lot of time to undo this knot of, of all this development that, that the Trump administration laid the, laid the path for. Uh, um, uh, I can't remember the exact details, but, uh, yeah, you cite at least one example, a, a rare example, right, of a, of a uh, oil or gas lease that was, <clears throat> that was reversed. And I can't remember the, the, yeah. the time frame, 30 years or something? Yeah, it took decades to, to, undo, to retire that oil and gas lease up in, uh, on the Rocky Mountain front in the Badger Two Medicine Wilderness, uh, which is important, uh, sacred area to the Blackfeet Indians up in northern Montana. And so it's, uh, it's, there's going to be years of, of trying to figure out how best to handle what came down during the Trump administration. Another thing is, is what will happen to the Bureau of Land Management they um, moved headquarters to Grand Junction, Colorado. A lot of senior people left and retired, and and so are they. And they have a five-year lease on the building they're in in, in Grand Junction. Uh, are they going to move it back to um, back to uh, Washington D.C. or are they going to leave it there? Uh, I, I don't know. That's that's another unknown. Un, um, and then there's the, the decisions and that were made by William Perry Pendley, whom a judge here in Montana ruled was not a legitimate director of the Bureau of Land Management because he was uh, not confirmed by Congress. So there's lots of question marks um, as to where where this all will go. You write uh, that the Trump administration made at least 125 rule changes uh, to favor special interests on public lands. Uh, you go on to say that uh, the, you know, rule changes, uh, those are harder to, or slower, right, to, to change. There's a whole process in changing a rule. Right, they have to go through through um, hearings, so it takes a lot longer. Joe Biden has done a lot of executive orders to reverse the Trump administration's decisions. And most notably, the first one out the door was the Keystone XL, which would come down from from the tar sands of, of northern Alberta and go through Montana and out. out uh, I'm not, I can't remember where the end point is, but, it, you know, huge uh, oil pipeline that would take the tar sands into a slurry and then send it uh, into markets in the U.S. And um, he, on day one, Joe Biden reversed that. And he can do that through executive action. But uh, things like changes to the Endangered Species Act rules or NEPA is another big one that um, that people have complained about that made it easier for the Forest Service to allow logging and, and other development on public lands take a long time uh, to undo and have to have hearings. And if there's resistance in the Senate, uh, it, it, it could not happen. So 
again, a lot of the stuff is just starting to play out, and we'll, we'll see where it goes. There's a lot on the plate for for the, the new uh, administration to deal with, not just public lands and environmental things, but lots of other things. Of course, one of the changes that President Trump made was uh, definitely not under the radar. Uh, he did it in a very public way. That was uh, significantly shrinking Bears Ears National Monument and uh, Grand Staircase, Escalante National Monument. Uh, that a president has the power, at least to tell the courts way onto this, the president has the power to, uh, you know, to to establish those national monuments or, uh, you know, again, to tell the courts way in uh, to, to shrink those monuments um, under the Antiquities Act. Uh, the people you've been talking to, do you, what, do you, do you have a sense the way the courts will rule on this, what's uh, going to happen? And uh, is the Biden administration likely to increase those monuments back to where they were? Well, um, Charles Wilkinson was part of a, a group that filed uh, against the Trump administration's decision, filed a court case against the Trump administration's decision to um, to uh, downsize the Bears here and the um, Grand Staircase Escalante. And um, it never got to court. Uh, it kind of sat in, in, uh, in limbo uh, because um, the judge never got to it. And so it was never decided about whether a president could downsize another president's um, national monument designation. Um, so that's still up in the air. It's not been decided. I, mean, I don't think it's ever been decided. Uh, I do think that Biden has said that he will expand Bears Ears and Grand Staircase back to where they were. Um, Charles Wilkinson, again, a lawyer at, at UC Boulder, says that that's well established that presidents are allowed to do that kind of a thing. So I think that those are going to go back uh, to their uh, larger size. Um, but one of the things that all this brings up, you know, executive decisions and the way these decisions are made, is is kind of the uh, inconsistency of them. You know, um, we, we Bill Clinton establishes a grand staircase and, and Obama the Bears here, and then everyone's kind of on board with that for several years, and then Trump came, comes in and undoes that. And that changes everything. And now Biden comes back in again and and changes it back. And now it may be that a, that a Republican president uh, comes in after after Joe Biden and and does it reverses it again. So it, it, it's hard on these kinds of issues for communities that live in these areas or states to have to um, have to kind of you know have this uh, seesaw uh, public lands policy in their you know most important areas, and it's hard for people to to make decisions about. You know, should I invest in a bed and breakfast or should I, um, you know, a tour guide or something like that for these areas when when they're kind of up in the air in a lot of ways? So, let's see, we'll see if this, this, we'll see. If this happens again. Yeah, and there's always fierce debate about uh, the, the economy and 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 how the economy is doing in in these areas, right? The county economy, town economies, gateway communities. Um, and the type of economy that, that folks want, you know, the, the ranching, et cetera, versus tourism. Um, and, you know, people will say, well, you can have both, but uh, it seems like in some cases it, it, it ends up in being a zero-sum game argument. There are places where where uh, it's hard to have both. I've been to 
uh, down near, uh, I went to some of the leading um, rock art uh, sites down near um, Aztec, New Mexico, and there's one famous rock uh, rock art image down there. It's a petroglyph, which is carving in stone, and it's it must be when the um, uh, what they believe it is is when the conquistadors first came in the 1500s. They were on horseback, and it's an image of a of a conquistador on horseback, and, and beautiful panel, uh, lots of different panels down there, and it's just riddled with oil and gas development. Uh, at least it was, you know, 10 years ago when I was there. And, and it's still going on. The oil and gas development is still going on in a lot of places. And, and so there are some uses of the land that just aren't compatible with others. Um, but by and large, I think there has been an accommodation uh, and a, uh, of of tourism. People realize now that, that tourism, national parks, is a much bigger economy than it was 20 years ago when I began doing all this. I mean, the Actually, it began before that, but twenty last twenty years has seen a huge meteoric rise in visitation to national parks and public lands. I mean, that was one of the stories I did that you mentioned in the New York Times this year. Is because of the pandemic, that people have flooded into the West. One of the things you can do is, is there are six hundred million acres of public lands, and, and it's yours as a taxpayer citizen, and you can go out and you can recreate and fish and hunt and all those things, and, and it's it's. It's a public land, and so people are using it, and and we're seeing a detrimental impact from the number of people on public lands, with you know, impinging on wildlife habitat, impinging on other users, uh, you, know, you know, causing environmental damage, and so on. So it's it's kind of we're shifting to a, a newer economy, I think, and and, and but it uh, comes with its own problems, its own uh, drawbacks. We are talking with Jim Robbins, in case you just joined us. He, he is a journalist uh, based in Helena, Montana. He's, he writes on uh, public lands, uh, environmental issues, and he writes for the New York Times, Condé Traveler. Uh, he's been writing for Yale Environment uh, 360 magazine as well and other publications. And uh, we're picking his brain uh, today on these issues. And uh, he has written uh, about... The pandemic-related overcrowding on Montana's rivers. Uh, I want to uh, dive into that after a break a little uh, more deeply. The headline here in the New York Times, Pandemic Crowds Bring River Geddon to Montana's Rivers. Um, we've had some of that phenomenon in Utah as well. Um, and uh, other topics, we've been talking about public lands. I want to also get into a very interesting uh, recent article about uh, uh, the uh, the connection between the growth of deadly viruses and the destruction of nature, uh, and many other topics. Uh, if you'd like to join this conversation, you can uh, join us to upraxcess at gmail.com, or email upraxcess at gmail.com. We'll be back with Jim Robbins following this brief break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are talking about public lands, talking about the environment, climate, with uh, journalist uh, Jim Robbins. He's based in Helena, Montana, and he's written for the New York Times, Condé Nast Traveler, uh, lately been writing articles for uh, Yale Environment 360 and uh, other publications. His latest book, by the way, is The Wonder of Birds, What They Tell Us About the World, Ourselves, and a Better Future. Uh, so Jim Robbins, uh, before we get into River Geddon, which I definitely want to talk about, um, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about the, uh, because you have a wide, uh, a long and wide sweep of, uh, of experience writing on these issues. So if we draw a line from the Sagebrush Rebellion to the occupation of Malheur National Wildlife Refuge, uh, 
Um, it's. I was going to ask you about tone, but tone seems to be <laughs> an insufficient word. Has the nature of this fight, this conflict, uh, changed? And it, and it seems to me to to, to be tracking the the overall. Um, I don't know, uh, deepening, uh, intensification, increasing the nastiness of, of just the overall national political debate. Uh, I wonder if you'd maybe compare and contrast uh, the, you know, the Sagebrush Rebellion to, uh, to Malheur. Yeah, I agree. I think that, that things have gotten a lot more uh, intense over public lands issues since the 1980s, the Sagebrush Rebellion. Back in those days, I mean, people were angry and and there's a lot of invective and, and things like that, but uh, I don't re- think there were any physical altercations or any uh, takeovers of wildlife refuges or or uh, just a lot of anger. And um, now, look, you know, I've got the Malheur situation. You've got uh, Clive and Bundy, who still hasn't paid his grazing fees and still is, is grazing on public lands and refuses to do anything there. And and um, uh, other people who vowed to fight the federal government. Um, I, I don't know. I know that people are very worried that it could result in, in more conflict, more serious armed conflict in the West. Of course, this is the land of the, of the self, uh, self-regarded self uh, independent types, even though a lot of the, the West was built on um, federal subsidies. People... Deal with this is you know they're the they're the real uh, patriots out here and so uh, people are concerned and there's I just read yesterday that um, Eamon Bundy is forming his own militia uh, around the West the Patriot group or something I can't remember the name I just saw that yesterday so you know well it just kind of mirrors what's happened in, in Washington D.C. and and with the you know the raid on the Capitol and and other things that are going on. And polarization is, is, is as bad as it's ever been. Worst. So to, maybe to contrast that, and I, uh, I don't know if there's hope out there, are you seeing uh, any instances of successful compromise regarding uh, regarding public lands out there? Yes, it doesn't get as much press as, as, um, as the conflicts, of course. You know, the media loves to focus on, on those kind of uh, um, problems, but I've done stories over the years on these community forestry groups that get together on federal land, federal forest service land, to um, uh, to come up with, with agreed-upon uses for federal national forests. Buy-in. They have buy-in from the forest service uh, on how they can manage forest or the forest around their area for all different uses and decide where we can log here we want recreation here and protect watersheds here. So there's been a lot of that kind of a thing uh, and um, in a lot of places. One of the interesting things was, was when I was doing a series on the Colorado River, there's been a lot of those kind of cooperative management uh, arrangements in around Colorado River issues and how do you protect uh, the watersheds and, and assure flow and protect endangered species and so on. And, and people told me that after uh, the Trump administration came in, a lot of the a lot of the working together uh, kind of went down the tubes, and that people stopped uh, uh, working cooperatively, and or you know didn't want to do that anymore because they they felt that uh, I don't know the Trump administration kind of set the tone for for how things were going to get done. 
So I don't know if that's now gone back or going to go back after the after the return of the, the Democrats to power, or if, if kind of uh, things have have taken on a tone of uh, of uh, you know difficulty in, in those cooperative arrangements. Uh, I want to uh, jump into uh, what what somebody you you talked to called this River Geddon. Uh, just to read the headline here from the New York Times uh, piece that you wrote: "Pandemic crowds bring River Geddon to Montana's rivers." Um, and there's uh, there's a, a photo here, a uh, crowded parking lot by a trail in Bozeman, Montana. I don't know. There must be forty cars there on that on that trailhead. So, uh, as you mentioned before the break, uh, I guess th- this is a this is a release for people, right? You, you're isolated in your home. You you can't uh, gather with people, but the, there's a big old uh, world out there with public lands, and uh, people say, "Well, I can get out into that," right? Right, and, and Bozeman is a is a global uh, destination for a lot of people who have heard about Bozeman. It's near Yellowstone, and and they've moved there. I mean, there's there's a lot of levels of, of impact from this kind of uh, uh, I've heard them called Zoom towns because people are moving there to these places to uh, so they can have Zoom meetings, and it doesn't matter where they live anymore, so they can go there. One architect in uh, in Bozeman uh, told me that he's got six houses, which is as many as he can handle at once, and he's had to turn down 12 others from people who, who, you know, when the pandemic took off, they, they decided they want to move to Bozeman. And so the growth is meteoric in these in these towns, not just Bozeman, but, you know, Whitefish, Montana, and, and parts of all throughout the West, really, Santa Fe. So people are grappling with that. And then, of course, when people come there, they want to hike and bike and cross-country ski and i talked to a fellow who runs the bike and ski shop in bozeman he told me this year they sold five times as many cross-country skis as they did uh as they did uh the previous year and he told me that uh they can't keep bikes in for more than a few days mountain bikes and um he told me that uh, trek bicycles the largest uh, bike manufacturer in the country uh, went from having the salesman for Trek told him went from having a back order of eleven thousand bikes that means how many uh, how many bikes they're waiting on uh, that they want to ship out to people who've already ordered them to one point two million. So mountain biking took off, you know, soared, and so you know you're seeing this phenomenon all around the West. And then of course what that means is there's many more people out hiking and biking and and um, uh, doing all sorts of activities, fishing. <laughs> That's the one you mentioned, the River Geddon. And it's really impacted the people who uh, have come and, and expected a certain level of use on rivers, certain rivers, and, and can get away from the crowds. And it's just hard to get away from the crowds anymore. We've gone from Yellowstone-like crowds uh, in Yellowstone to, to a lot of other places. And so, and Montana is not as crowded as some other states. So it's it's got to be a serious problem. It's not just a, a problem with finding your fishing hole bumper to bumper with other boats, and it's hard for people to wait fish because there's so many boats. And uh, but it's also uh, an impact on wildlife and natural values. Um, having so many people, there have been a number of studies that showed that mountain bikes, particularly, but all forms of human use, impact wildlife. A couple of years ago, I did a piece for the Times on a, on a, a forest ranger, a forest service ranger in near Kalispell who was riding his bike and uh, collided with a grizzly bear, and the bear killed him. 
Mm. So there's lots more potential for those kind of impacts out there. And and um, wildlife, you know, they run, they hide, they, they want to get away from people. So they don't have the security they used to have. And, you know, it's changing the West, that's for sure. All this uh, this pandemic is really sending a lot of people out into the natural world. Yeah, uh, this quote struck me, uh, Carl Hamming, board member of the local chapter, Trout Limited. He says, you're in a flotilla with five boats in front of you and five in back of you. And uh, some folks, um, you know, saying it feels like Pirates of the Caribbean ride at uh, Disneyland, which is, uh, of course, right. exactly what folks want to get away from, right? But if everybody <laughs> goes out there, then then you don't get away from the crowding. Right. I mean, it's a good thing that people are getting out into nature and it's their land and, 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 and to see what it's like out there and to enjoy it. But at the same time, there's this, there's a certain tipping point at which everyone goes out and it, and it changes it dramatically. One of the things people are concerned about is what it does to the fishery. Someone jokingly said, you know, the Madison, which is the one you're talking about there um, in, in Southern Montana, they call it the river where the fish have no lips because when you fish, you 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 um, uh, you set the hook in the fish and and um, and then you have to let it go. It's catch and release. But if you do that enough, the fish you know it hurts the fish. It damages them. When you have so many people doing it, it's just this constant uh, battering of the fish with the hooks and uh, letting them go, picking them up, taking the hook out, letting them go. And so it's it's a serious problem. And, and that the science around impacts to fish uh, show that in, on the Madison that the number of big fish have, have gone down in the last year. So uh, I think we don't know all of the impacts yet, but it could be it could have a real impact on, on not only on wildlife with all people coming out here, but also on fish in the rivers and, and other things we haven't kind of figured out yet. Um, this is having, um, I understand, an economic uh, impact, people coming out. Well, first of all, I want to ask you, uh, you mentioned some people are moving out, right? Um, well, a lot of people moving out to places like Bozeman uh, in this pandemic and, and telework uh, world. Uh, some are purchasing houses, I guess. Some are renting, I would suppose. What, what's the thought? When the pandemic ends, will we see an exodus of these folks? I think that's a real question. I, I don't know. Maybe people, maybe, first off, we don't know when the pandemic is going to end. It could go on for a while yet. Um, I mean, not just a few months, but maybe a year or two, some people are saying, or at least some, some form of it. Uh, and two, if, if, is, the, is the Zoom town phenomenon going to, to change, or, or is that going to end, or will people decide they permanently want to live in a place like, like Bozeman or, or Missoula or, you know, uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, or any, any one of a number of Mecca communities where people go for the lifestyle. Um, I don't know. That's up in the air, too. Um, I think that a lot of people will stay. Uh, there are an awful lot of amenities out here in the West for people who are interested in, in hiking and recreation. So I think you'll see a permanent little boomlet from all this, if, if not something more. Um, and how we handle it will we'll, really be important. A lot of growth issues are in places like Bozeman. I mean, they can't keep up with the number of proposals for housing developments and so on. And then, then another issue in, in these places is there's rent because people are, are coming in and buying up houses for investment and uh, holding on to them 
Um, so the, the, the price of houses, I mean, I, I don't remember what that piece you talked about that I wrote about Bozeman, but the, the housing, the median house price went up like 50000 or something in one summer. And uh, and over a course of a year, it was, it was just incredible. I, again, I don't remember the numbers, but so a lot of places where the, the housing prices are going up. On top of that, you have Airbnb and VRBO, and people are, are leasing their houses, you know, for short-term stays. And so they can make as much money in a week as they could in a month renting it. So there's a lot, a lot of people who are impacted by trying to find affordable rentals in these places. That's another element that we didn't get into, but the the class structure and all of this. And and there's towns where, still towns like Livingston, Montana, which is near Bozeman and, and other places where people are still working and not making a lot of money and have to compete with people who are coming in from other places who maybe California or so on where they've sold a house and they can afford to buy a much more expensive house. Bozeman certainly fits into that. I mean, you, you can't, if you're working for a living in Bozeman, you cannot come anywhere near being able to afford a house there. You have to leave and go elsewhere to find a place that you can buy. So that's a, that's another controversy that's going on these days. Yeah, and this is intensification, um, I suppose, of, of a phenomenon that does go on, right? You mentioned uh, California folks, and it, it's kind of a joke here in Utah. If, if folks come in uh, because they want a better quality of life, um, even if they're not from California, they're accused of being from California, right? But um, So you mentioned in this piece uh, uh, some residents, I think you're referring to the, the previous residents, right, the longer-term residents, um, the biggest blow, you say, is whittling away of their psychic income, which you go on to explain that the, the, they've made the calculation. They're, they're willing to make less money in exchange for living in a wild place uh, with uncrowded hiking, fishing, and skiing. Uh, now that equation is imbalanced, right? The prices go up and and it's more crowded. Right, right. Of course, the people coming from a crowded place like California, to them, it seems wild here still. There's a the theory of relativity, you know, in other words, the people who who come from, you know, Southern California, it seems wild to them, even though things are still, you know, the growth here is still still booming. So it's, there's a lot of things that have lined up. I mean, the West has always been about change since I've lived here, and certainly before that, and, 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 and it's not, it hasn't died down at all. It's, it's still just as intense, if not more so now. Uh, than it ever has been. I mean, look at look at Southern Utah and and what's going on down around Hurricane and and uh, you know those areas along the interstate there. I mean, it's just booming as well. It's just you know, St. George. I mean, I think St. George is the fastest growing or one of the fastest growing cities in the country. So it's it's everywhere. And of course, it's closer to California. It draws more more people. Arizona is going through this as well. And so it's. It's happening everywhere, and uh, the pandemic only seems to have it turned up the volume on it all. What's the, uh, I don't know if you talked to in city officials or, you know, economic officials in some of these areas, are they are they expecting that some folks in these Zoom towns will stay? Uh, are they hoping some folks will stay? Well, I think that, you know, the Chamber of Commerce hopes that they'll stay. Uh, I just saw a piece. I live in Helena, which is near Bozeman, about you know, an hour and 15 minutes away. And I just had the head of the local development authority in the paper, and he's bragging about how the, the Helena to Bozeman corridor is filling in and, and subdivisions are going in everywhere. I mean, it's, it's, going, it's booming here, and uh, partly now driven by the pandemic and 
inexpensive land and and uh, and it's um, no shows shows no sign of being controlled at all. It's just kind of helter skelter development, and, and um, so I think that a lot of people feel this is the future. This is going to be how the West, uh, you know, it'll look like Boulder, you know, Denver corridor, the, the Front Range, and um, uh, that's what people seem to uh, be headed toward. And, and a lot of the people in you know in power are are certainly in favor of this kind of growth. Uh, I know. People in Bozeman, the mayor there, I know well, and they're trying to do what they can to to control the growth and to do it right. But it's it's hard, and they can only Montana and the economy here has, has long been a struggle. And so when people are making money and there's, there's a boom going on, it's hard to kind of tell people, you know, that we have to kind of control this and, and slow it down a little bit. So, you know, it's a, it's a political balancing act to try and rein in this kind of growth and. And do it right, but I think that they're doing some of that. But but I don't. I think it's here to stay, and it's only going to continue. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking with the writer Jim Robbins. Uh, he's based in Helena, Montana, and uh, writes on uh, environmental uh, issues, uh, public lands issues, related issues. Uh, he's written for the New York Times, Condé Nast Traveler. He's been writing for uh, Yale Environment Three Hundred and Sixty magazine as well. And uh, we'll take another break. When we come back, we'll have another uh, about uh, eight or nine minutes left in this hour. And uh, after the break, I'd like to talk about a very interesting uh, article about this con- a concept of known as One Health. And this gets into uh, connection. Of course, we know we're all interconnected, the, the whole world, uh, you know, humans, animals, everything. Uh, but this, uh, this connection between the growth of uh, viruses... And uh, the destruction of nature. We'll talk a bit about that and a couple of the topics if we have time uh, following this break. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We have about seven or eight minutes left in the program here, and uh, writer Jim Robbins has joined us. He's uh, a journalist based in Helena, Montana. Um, and uh, I want to uh, talk here in the remaining time, uh, Jim Robbins. Uh, about this concept of One Health. Um, in November, I'm quoting from the article here um, in the Medical Express, um, in November, a German Federal Foreign Office and Wildlife Conservation Society held a virtual conference called One Planet, One Health, One Future, aimed at heading off the next pandemic by helping world leaders understand that the killer viruses, uh, like the one that causes uh, COVID-19, Many other less deadly pathogens are unleashed on the world uh, by the destruction of nature. We're talking here about uh, spillover, of course, uh, viruses uh, going from animals to humans. Um, and uh, and this fact, I guess, the, this concept of, um, you know, one planet, one health, that uh, our health is related to the natural world. Right. Uh, I think something like 70% of... of Human diseases come from from animals. It's called they're called zoonoses, um, and some of the ones that we're impacted by here in, in the U.S. are, you know, West Nile virus, which birds carry around, and Lyme disease, which comes from white-footed mice and spread into into humans uh, because of people um, disrupting the, the natural ecosystem. When you do away with predators. In the East, for example, uh, the number of white-footed mice take off, and they're a reservoir for 
for Lyme disease. But most of this kind of thing we're talking about takes place in more tropical high areas of high biodiversity, like China and, and the Amazon and Africa. And, and uh, what happens is people will go into a, a natural area and um, they'll disrupt, uh, you know, they'll put in farms or they'll build um, homes and and viruses that bats, for example, might have been carrying for, for hundreds of years, uh, causing them no real illness, um, get into human areas. And humans have what, what's called a naive immune system. It's not, it's not seen or recognized this kind of virus before. And it takes off like wildfire, and it spreads amongst uh, amongst um, people in that area. And then if people travel um, uh, to other parts of the world on a plane or something, before they know they're sick, it can spread. And that's what they think happened in, in Wuhan. Uh, you know, bats, the, the latest thing I've heard is horseshoe bats, um, uh, spread this disease to people maybe at a wet market. We've all heard that. And then people from there flew to other parts of the world with the disease. Uh, there was a large Chinese contingent in Italy uh, uh, in the fashion industry in Milan, and a lot of Chinese people came to Milan right at the early parts of the pandemic, and, and Italy was hard hit. So um, that's how these things happen and how they take off now with travel the way it is these days. And can, it can spread around the world before we even know that it's out there, especially with something like the coronavirus, which um, which uh, <clears throat> uh, is a long time before you know you're sick, or you might not be sick at all. You may be asymptomatic. Um, I, I just read a story about the AIDS virus. They think that the AIDS virus may have come out of chimpanzees uh, back a uh, hundred years ago. Uh, that people were uh, there were military was in. The Congo, and they ran out of food. Uh, it was uh, European troops, and they were hunting chimpanzees, and they ate it, and um, uh, it, it lived in that region for a long time, and then finally came out and into the greater world in the, what, the 70s or 80s and, and spread around the world. So there's lots. There's there's millions of, of viruses out there in the natural world in animals that could could um, put, pose a potential problem. And there's a real effort now to surveil these areas to, to kind of watch and see uh, more carefully in light of the whole coronavirus pandemic to see uh, if, if to catch these diseases when they come out before they can escape into the population at large. Lots of efforts around that um, and uh, lots of money being spent these days on, on this. People have finally, I mean, I wrote about this first in 2012, but people have finally figured this out, and so it's changing. Lots of things are changing these days for the better. All this sounds kind of well, sometimes doom and gloom, but there is a real effort to uh, to the pandemic has spurred people to try and figure out exactly what's going on, how we can do things better in a lot of different ways. So it's it's definitely got a, a an upside to it. Well, it's a good, uh, hopeful place to end the conversation. We're just about out of time here. Um, just 30 seconds, uh, Jim Robbins. What are, you, what are you working on now? Uh, I'm working on a, a piece about the fashion industry and how they're trying to create a circular economy with their products. You know, instead of buying clothes and throwing them out at the end of their life, 
they're trying to figure out a way that you can recycle everything and that all clothes will, will be born and worn and then uh, uh, recycled again. Some companies are trying to do, are already doing some of that, but it's going to take a lot more effort. Interesting. We'll look for that. Uh, Jim Robbins uh, is a journalist based in Helena, Montana, and you can uh, see his work in New York Times, the Yale Environment 360, and other publications. And his latest book is The Wonder of Birds, uh, what they tell us about the world, ourselves, and a better future. Jim Robbins, uh, thank you so much for joining us for the hour. Oh, you're welcome, Tom, and thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, coming up tomorrow on the program, we are going to uh, uh, talk about a film. It's a new uh, independent documentary. It's called Picture a Scientist, and it presents a sobering portrait of struggles women face in pursuing studies and careers in science. We'll hear some clips from the film. We'll be talking with the director, Sharon Shattuck. We'll also be talking with uh, the organizer for some events uh, here at Utah State University. They'll have virtual screenings in uh, early March and they'll have a panel discussion featuring some USU uh, uh, scholars. Uh, that's will be on Monday, March 8th. That's International Women's Day 2021. Uh, so we'll have the director, uh, Sharon Shattuck, of the film uh, Picture a Scientist, and we'll also be talking with uh, USU Assistant Professor of uh, Biology, Sarah Freeman. I hope you'll join us uh, for that program. That's coming up uh, tomorrow. And I uh, hope you join us on Monday as well. Uh, Monday's program will be quite interesting. Utah's Poet Laureate, uh, Paisley Rechtal, teaches at University of Utah. Uh, we'll talk about her latest book. It's a fascinating book. It's called Appropriate, and it uh, treats cultural appropriation. That's our program for Monday. Hope you join us, and uh, thanks for listening today to Access Utah. <laughs>